All right, if you have your Bibles, once again, in Matthew chapter 22, I would like to direct your attention to the verse that contains the question that we're going to be looking at today, and that would be verse number 36. Matthew 22 and verse 36 says this, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the day you've given to us, and thank you for your watch care over our lives. And we know that can be a catchphrase, but uh, we also know that there's a lot to it. And we thank you that uh, the scriptures remind us that your watch care is so profound that you even send your angels to have charge over us concerning all of our ways, lest at any time we dash our foot against a stone. And we realize, Lord, you're able to protect us in unseen ways, things that we don't even know. And that happens every day, perhaps in our lives. We're grateful for that as, as we get into the car and don't even think about it. But danger can sometimes be just a moment away. So for all of these things, we give you thanks and praise. We thank you that it has been your good pleasure to give us another Lord's Day and to give us the privilege of being together in worship and to share your word. And Lord, we can only come before you now and prostrate our hearts to tell you that we know we can't accomplish anything of any spiritual ministry or good without the working and power and empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so would you just give help and blessing to each listener and to me as I speak, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. For these things I pray in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Well, there is a question as we continue looking at these uh, questions that people ask Jesus. They asked him this, that's the title of the series. And uh, I, I'd sort of like to just zoom out a little bit and let you uh, see the picture of this chapter where we are and hark back for a moment even to chapter 19. You remember in chapter 19 we had three questions and we looked at those and then when we came over to chapter 22, it was kind of interesting to notice again that in this chapter, this one chapter, you actually have three uh, questions, none of which are ones I would discount. In other words, I think they're all important enough to, to uh, utilize in the series and to, uh, to, to bring a message on. First one, drop back to verse number 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And so they asked the question about whether it was lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not. Then we come down to verse 23. So after the Pharisees have been dismissed and Verse 23 says, The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And their question we ultimately get to in verse 28. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. So we looked at that last time. And then this morning we're in verse 34 and following. And we find this question in verse number 36, which is asked by, as Matthew tells us, if you look back up in the verse before, uh, in Matthew's description, it says a certain lawyer. And uh, there's really no bad connotation to that. Just understand that when you have that term as opposed to scribe, which is kind of interesting, uh, Mark's account uses scribe. Sometimes it would be both, often both. But the lawyer uh, designation just causes us to realize that now you're dealing with someone. It is a different word. And uh, now it causes us to realize we're dealing with someone who was considered to be an expert in the law. Not so much like you'd go to an attorney today, although if you do go to one, you do want them to be an expert in the law. But in that day, of course, it was the law as we think of the scripture in the Old Testament. And they were students, 
and considered to be experts in the law. And uh, also remember that the backdrop of what's going on in this chapter is, is that all of these questions are kind of coming to Jesus against a backdrop with a little bit of color to them of they're, they're asked by Jesus critics. Personally, I think this particular man, especially when you read uh, the account in Luke's, uh, rather Mark's gospel, I think he's more bland. I don't think he's as aggressive as the other ones are. But nevertheless, if you look at the verse that we're, we're uh, looking at this morning, or the verse before, it does say he asked him a question tempting him. So there's still a little bit of color to this. Tempting is probably the flavor of testing in this verse. And so there is a little bit of a flavor of this background, but look back in chapter 21, and here's a little reminder. Um, when we come to chapter 21 and we look at the, the latter part of this, verse 45, and when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. So they took umbrage at the direct application that Jesus made in these parables, which he told on the second day of Holy Week, Passion Week, as we refer to it. Uh, they realized he was talking about them. They realized he was exposing them and their hypocrisy. So they tried to come at him another way. And the other way of trying to come at him was to trip him up in his words. So now we have the third and last of these is asked by a lawyer or a scribe. And uh, so you, you kind of get the sense that these stories are different but similar. In other words, the, you get the picture of what's going on in the chapter, what day of the week this is on in Passion Week, why it's happening like it's happening, and what the color of it is. All of those elements are pretty much uh, in common to this. But when we drill down, and the heart of this message this morning, the title is, it, Which is the Great Commandment? And what we're going to find is that the real takeaway from all this, the real blessing of all of this, is to see what Jesus answered in response, because in his teaching, the Lord makes a distinct contribution. And in verse number 40, so look at verse number 40, when it all comes down and when it's all said and done, look at the statement that Christ makes. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so what you have there is the ability of Christ to distill, really, the entire Old Testament and form a theology of the Old Testament in two simple statements that come from two verses in the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if you know how amazing that really is. Verse 36 is introduced as the lawyer addresses Jesus. He calls him master. And remember that that's the word teacher. And Jesus was known as a teacher. And of course, we understand that he is the greatest of all teachers. For those of you who might have come across some of these chapel sayings, do you remember this one? Simplicity is truth's most becoming garb. I don't know how many people have encountered that saying elsewhere, but uh, there is an art. There is a test, really, in the ability of a teacher to take complicated, difficult subjects and boil them down to something that people can understand as you're trying to relate it to them. This year, at the end of the school year, uh, I had the opportunity, had invitations to speak at two different Christian school graduations. 
And uh, those are always cherished opportunities because as kids uh, graduate from school and go on, you have kind of that, you've kind of been given the opportunity for that one last shot at it in a message to take, give them something to take away. But in a sense, there's also almost a dread because, see, I've done this a long time myself. The ministry in, in Huntington, we have a Christian school, and so I was very familiar with this. But nevertheless, out of courtesy, I asked the same question that, that uh, I would always be sure our speakers, when they invited, knew, and that is, okay, thank you so much. I'll really be glad to do that. How long do you want the message to be? Well, I already know the answer before I ask the question. 20 minutes. And there's a good reason for that. If you think about a graduation ceremony, I mean, you have a lot of things to accomplish. Sometimes there are awards and other things that are a part of it. Recognition, you often have two speeches, the, the salutatorian, the valedictorian, these types of things. So the other things have to be accomplished other than just the message. But that is taxing in the extreme. I don't know if I would shock you by telling this, but you, you know it's, it's much easier to preach 40 minutes than it is 20 minutes. That is if you're going to accomplish something in the 20 minutes. It, it really, to, to think about what you've really got the time to do, to know what you can go beyond, in other words, not talk about every small thing you might want to talk about, and that even might have some profit, and hit the points that you need to hit in order to get it done in that amount of time, make it sufficiently clear, and have it in such a package that it's something that they might remember something from, take away. That's really taxing. So, this is an amazing thing, really. I mean, I, I hope I've done some small job of, of illustrating for you for a teacher to be able to accomplish something of this magnitude. I mean, we, we think of the Old Testament, 39 books. And to be able to capture the essence of that in two statements and authoritatively say, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You notice he doesn't just say the law. He says the Law and the Prophets, which was a shortened way that the Jews referred to as the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament. You might say the Law, the Psalms, and the Prophets if you were going to give the whole thing, but the Law and the Prophets was a shortened way for the Jews to refer to the whole Old Testament. Well, let's just talk a little bit about the test for a moment that, that does go on. It says that he asked him a question, tempting or testing him. And you probably had that pointed out to you before that this word in the original uh, that's translated here, tempting, is also the same word that means testing. It, it sort of depends on the context, how you might consider it. This may be more along the lines of a test than it was to tempt the Lord. As I say, I think this particular individual is a bit more benign. Uh, you can't get rid of the color, the fact that there's already been some hostility from these other two people who have come to Jesus first. But his approach is not real aggressive. In fact, it's almost as if he comes as one teacher to another. And he's interested in what Jesus is going to say about this subject. And the reason that I think that this is so interesting is, and why I say from one teacher to another, and why he had his own personal interest in this, if you've not heard this before, you might really find this uh, interesting. Did you know that the, the scribes, as they studied the Old Testament, the Jews, as they put together years and years and years of studying the Old Testament, came up with this conclusion that the Old Testament, and don't think of just the book of Moses, the whole thing, that the Old Testament contains 613 commandments. I just want you to think about that for a moment. How would you like somebody to give you the job? Now, I did, 
if I hadn't told you that, say, look, go home this afternoon, get out your Old Testament, and figure out how many commandments there are there. How long do you think you'd be doing that? That would be quite a project, and even when you got done with reading the Old Testament and trying to do it a little bit at the time so that you didn't kind of get, you know, foggy while you were doing it, and carefully writing down every... You'd still want to go back and check that a time or two. So this would be, for the Jews to come up with that kind of a, an analysis is an amazing thing in and of itself. Here's a further breakdown. Of the 613, they described 365 of them as being negative. In other words, don't do something. And the other 248 as being positive. Do something. So... Think about that for a moment, because the first thing that you would do after you came up with that is, if you came up with 613 commandments, the natural thing to think of next would be, well, I wonder if there are any that are more important than the others, because 613 is a lot to keep in mind. Are there any that are more important? And the terminology that the Jews, this, this was definitely the way they, they approached this matter. The terminology that they would use is they would divide these into two categories, ones that they considered weightier and ones that they considered lighter. I guess I'd rather be lighter than weightier, but if you're talking about girth. But that's how they did it, the weightier and the lighter. And so this is the question, this is how you interpret. This is the exact question the scribe is asking, the lawyer is asking Jesus. You notice it says, which. He doesn't say, what, what. He doesn't say, what one, or what is the greatest commandment in the law. He says, which. Which, if you actually study that word, it, it's a different word than what would be. And it's a word that means, which sort of. So here was the point. Of all of these 613, which sort of commandment is the weightiest of all and the response of course that Jesus gives is still has the potential for debate because since the scribes dealt with this and the lawyers dealt with this you can say all right here's one teacher approaching another as a matter of academic interest but the answer that you gave to that could still potentially involve you in a little there may be some have difference of opinion on this that are still in the audience. So it's more benign, but nevertheless, it has that color to it. But that's the question that's being asked. That's the test that's being given. Now let's see what Christ says in response to this. So the answer that Jesus gives, I would say you are familiar with. He says, well, there are, the first commandment is thou shalt love the Lord thy God. And he, he quotes uh, from Deuteronomy. We're familiar with that. Then he says, that's the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, which comes from Leviticus, and we're familiar with this. Well, here's something to realize about this. This, 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 uh, this answer that Jesus gave up to this point was not entirely unknown to the Jews. In other words, this wasn't novel to Jesus. Jesus wasn't the first, this wasn't the first time they would have heard about those two commandments being first and second, so to speak. Um, let's uh, try to amplify on that. If we go over to the Mark account, so turn to Mark 12 for a moment, 
Um, I, I don't think this will hurt you too much just to keep your fingers and go over a few pages. This will put us with uh, Mark chapter 12, where Mark gives the account of this, where it gives a little bit more of what the, the scribe says, the lawyer says. I think you'll see this. Um, Mark chapter 12. So when he's responding to what Jesus says, look at verse 32. Jesus has given his statement about the two commandments. Then he says this, And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices." Do you get the impression that this guy was holding a little something? He wasn't any dumb bunny. He, he wasn't coming to Jesus. Uh, he, he had put some time into this, and he had some spiritual understanding of the law. He was right in what he said. Christ acknowledges this. Look at the next verse. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, that is, he answered wisely, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, he had some spiritual insight. And that's why I say I think this man was a bit more benign than the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians were. So this, this wasn't new. In fact, let's, let's look at one other illustration. Go keep your fingers in your place, but turn to Luke chapter 10. This is actually the question that gave rise to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, when you look here, now you see the reference to a lawyer again. Verse 25, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. So here you, you have that flavor again. The lawyers are always interested in, what do you think? You know, and well, I think this. So he's asking Jesus, and the question there, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? How do you, what's your take on it? How, how readest thou? He answering said, so this is the lawyer. Before Jesus has said anything, Jesus throws the ball back into his court. This is what he says. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy might, and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus responds to him and says, Thou hast answered right. <clears throat> so do you see this? From, from two different places, one's really the same, but just Mark's account the other, <clears throat> we're able to tell that this this particular idea wasn't novel to the Jews. What's really novel here is the statement that Jesus gets to next when he says authoritatively, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Well, let's think about that for a moment. Think about the word hang. Look at the word hang in your verse. What kind of things do we hang? We don't hang people too much anymore, although... Maybe some countries still use that. But uh, your wife might give you a picture and say, honey, would you hang this? So now you've got a picture to hang. And did you ever think about the physics there? I mean, you know, especially if this picture is heavy. If it's not really very heavy, it's really not, you don't think about it too much. But if you've got a picture yay wide and uh, with a heavy frame and so forth, a picture like that can, can exert quite a lot of force. And it's all on that wire coming down to a certain point. All that is going to be focused on that certain point. And what you've done is you've nailed this little hanger thingy into the wall. Hopefully with a picture of that size, you didn't put one of those things that you lick it and stick it because that, that isn't going to do the job. But if you chose a nail and a hook too small, you might get a bad surprise one day. That picture might come down 
crack and glass go everywhere, you, you wouldn't be happy then. Um, we also hang doors. So when you hang a door, everything depends not on that picture hook, but on those hinges. Whoever really looks at hinges? Not much. But the thing doesn't work if you don't have them, right? And if you get the thing wrong, it doesn't work either. So we hang doors. Um, lots of things like that that we hang. Um, it's the winter time, so people are coming in with their coats. And there in the lobby, if you don't have hangers, you have hooks. You hang your coat. Well, that's what Jesus is saying here, but he's actually saying a little bit more. He's not only saying that, look, these two commandments are the support. That's what I've been illustrating for you. He's not only saying these two commandments are the support for everything else. He is saying that. But he's saying <clears throat> these two commandments give rise. Everything flows from this. Everything you find in the Old Testament, all 613, if that number's right, commands that you find in the Old Testament, everything you've got there is either an application or a specific rendition, a specific case. This applied to a specific case of these two verses in the Old Testament. Does that maybe, I mean, I, I think about this and I think this is staggering. This is, this is what the Lord was able to come up with. And further, do you realize that this was a question that the Jews really pondered, and rightly so. Do you remember in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher is talking about a lot of things. And uh, he gets to the end of the book, and in Ecclesiastes 12, after he's done with everything he's been able to come up with, he says this, this is verse 13, right at the end of chapter 12, which is the last chapter, last two verses. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So at this point, with Solomon, the best wisdom that Solomon could muster, here's the conclusion of everything. Fear God and keep his commandments. It's getting to where Jesus was, but not there. You see what I'm saying? You get closer. Let's go to Micah. Uh, in the book of Micah, and we looked at this on uh, one of our Sunday night ones, Micah 6, 8. You get closer. Micah's further down the road in time, of course. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee? but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. And I pointed out, all right, you can summarize the first table of the law, walk humbly with thy God. You can summarize the second table of the law to do justly and to walk, uh, to love mercy. Closer yet. But to have the ability to look at the whole Old Testament and say, you know what? If you get these two principles and observe them in your life, you won't have a problem with any of the other 611. Because they all flow out of it. Uh, well, just to give a quick thought about that is, you know what, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, you won't have any other gods before him. You won't make any graven images. You won't take his name in vain. And you have no problem with remembering his special day to set it apart. 
And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you will not murder him. You will not commit adultery against his, him, his wife. You won't steal from him. You won't bear false witness against him. You won't covet what he has. And you won't be disrespectful to your parents either. Right? And from there it goes. Do you see how this, this is what Jesus comes up with? I want to try to pause for a moment to illustrate again just how difficult this is. The year is 1981. The man who's just been inaugurated president of the United States is Ronald Reagan. They called him the great... They call him the great communicator. Why was he the great communicator? The same reason. He could take concepts that he wanted people to understand that you really had no foggy... You didn't have the foggiest idea what that really meant and find a way to illustrate it for people. So early in 1981, Ronald Reagan was giving an economic speech, a a speech about economic policy. And now, don't fall out of your chair. But in 1981, at that juncture in Reagan's presidency, only several months, the United States was approaching the national debt threshold for the first time of $1 trillion. Do you know where we are 38 years later? $22 trillion. Not good. But how do you illustrate to someone back in 1981, thinking in terms of, you know, when in 1981 being a millionaire was still hot stuff. Probably a lot of people here still, I'd settle settle for that. But Reagan was looking for ways to illustrate that so that the average guy listening to his speech could figure out just how serious that problem really was. And so he said the only way, he said, I've been trying to think, this is from the speech, I've been trying to think of a way to illustrate how big it really is. The best I could come up with is to say that a stack of $1,000 bills, I've never even seen one except online, in your hand, only four inches high would make you a millionaire. Four inches, that's about like that. Of thousand dollar bills would make you a millionaire. A trillion dollars, which was what he was trying to illustrate, would be a stack of thousand dollar bills 67 miles high. Well, I can sort of get an idea at that point. That's what this is talking about. Now, other people seized on this illustration. In the year 2011, when there was a big ruckus about uh, approving the debt limit, the ceiling again, and uh, this time the debt was at, sat, and 30 years later, in 2011, the debt sat at $14.3 trillion. A man by the name of Otto Godfrey, who was a a graphic design artist, thought of another way to illustrate this, kind of a takeoff of Reagan, but a different way, because now you're at $14.3 trillion. This is what he said. He didn't use $1,000 bills because they're not in circulation. Most people have never seen one or had one. He used $100 bills. Here's what he said. If you take $14.3 trillion, you have two football fields twice as long, twice as wide as one football field. This is twice. It would be as long as two football fields and as high as the Statue of Liberty. 
think about that. As long and as wide as two football fields. Someone else thought of a better way to bring it down to the common man, although that's not too bad. Same year, same number, $14.3 trillion, and said, it's a, it's a, if you use $1 bills, which is <laughs> what most of us have more of than the other, if you want to illustrate what $14.3 trillion is, it's a pile that is one on top of the other of $1 bills that would stretch to the moon and back twice. So everybody's awake now because you were interested in that illustration, but do you get my point? Trying to find, I mean, I can't even compute really what one trillion, I mean, I know how to put the zeros on the paper, but it doesn't make any sense to me. Does it to you? I know it's a lot of money, but I don't really understand it. And of course, there's other things I could have given you this morning that would horrify you because you can, you can distill all that down into how much we spend every second. It's bad. So this is what Jesus is, is able to do here. And so now we get to the end of this. And if you were kind of using a, a baseball metaphor, it's like two up, two down. But this is the third guy. So it's like three batters come up. They throw their best pitch. This last guy, I would say he throws a fastball because it's, it's, you know, he's, there's a little bit of a color to it, but it's not like a tricky pitch, like a fat, like a curveball or something like that. He just throws a straight overhand fastball pitch. But if you think about what that is in baseball, and I'm no expert in baseball, but you know, the hand-eye coordination that's involved in that, to be able to figure out what kind of pitch is coming and be able to swing at that correctly at the right, but if you do it correctly, it's going woo because it's a fastball. When you, if you connect with that in a solid way, you're going to have what you want out of that pitch. Three guys up, three guys down. No one on base. All errors. There's no hits. Nobody lays a glove. Nobody even gets passed. It says here, no man durst asked him any questions. He, he put them all to silence. I mean, it's like having your breath knocked out of you. It's like they came with their best punch. We'll change to boxing. They came with, with their best punch. I remember back in boxing days of, well, it was Cassius Clay originally, but you remember then he switched to Muhammad Ali. And you had the fights with Joe Frazier. Anybody remember those? And you can watch them on YouTube now, I guess, or whatever. But... Uh, one of the things that bothered Ali was, he said, I hit him with my best punches. He said, punches that would crumble a wall. And he just stood there. there there's just something very intimidating about that. You lay your best punch on somebody and it, it doesn't seem to knock them down or have an effect. That's, that's what it is with these three guys. All right, three outs, what happens next inning? Next team, field guy in the outfield, and all those guys are coming in. They're turned to bat now, so Jesus is a one-man team. Jesus is up to bat. We didn't read these verses. Let's see what, what, let's see what Jesus, when he gets up to bat, has to do. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Verse 42, Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. That's their best answer. The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in the spirit call him Lord? 
saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Pretty good, huh? So we go from test to teaching to triumph. I mean, this is like a grand slam. This is like Jesus just knocks the thing right out of the park. How does he accomplish this? He asks a simple question about Messiah. Don't you think at this point they knew he claimed to be Messiah? Sure. I mean, there were times in his ministry that he didn't really want to make a big fuss over that because it wasn't time. He didn't want to get a lot of public, you know, publicity that would hinder his ministry. But at this point, it's, he's been pretty clear at, on different occasions. So they, they knew this. So they, he asked them a question about Messiah. And look at it again. Um, the Pharisees in particular, he says, what think ye of Christ? That's Messiah. What's your, what's your take on the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, their answer was the son of David. Were they right or wrong? Well, they were right as far as they got, right? I mean, they were right as far as they got. Trouble is, their answer was incomplete. And the reason their answer was incomplete is because Jesus is more than just the son of David. But see, in Jewish thinking, the reason this question has so so much significance, in Jewish thinking, the, the ancestor was always greatest. So do you remember when Jesus was interfacing with the woman at the well? She asked him the question, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well? In other words, you're coming down here now, but Jacob is the head cheese up here. See what I'm trying to say? Later in John chapter 8, when Jesus got into a wrangle with the Pharisees, they said, Art thou greater than our father Abraham? Who makest thou thyself? And they took umbrage because they knew he was claiming. He said, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> I'd say he, they knew he claimed what his claims were. Before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, I am, which is the name of God. So you're not 50 years old. So Jesus says to them, well, okay, if that's as far as it goes, and if the ancestor, if you're in your thinking, the ancestor's greater, then how is it that David in the 110th Psalm, the first verse, says to Messiah, because it's the Lord Jehovah said unto my Lord, Adonai, either is a term of deity. So Jehovah says to Messiah, who is David's Lord. So we've got the first and second person of the Trinity, but we also have all three because he says, how is it that David says in the spirit? This is really neat stuff. There's so much you can get out of this, but I can't talk about it at all. How is it then that he does this? They couldn't answer that. Or maybe what we should say is they wouldn't answer that. Because watch this, and it's just amazing. Jesus is so artful as a teacher that not only the things that we've talked about so far, the amazing things we've seen so far, he actually goes through this whole baseball game, all these questions that they have, 
comes back at the very end and brings the whole thing full circle to where the problem started out in the beginning. And the problem started out in the beginning because on the first day of Passion Week, on the Monday, Jesus went in and he overturned the tables of the money changers. He ran out of there, all those people who were making God's house a house of merchandise. And they came to him, remember, these the same outfit. The temple people, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they came to him and they said, by what authority doest thou these things? Remember that? That's Monday. He says, well, let me ask you a question. What about John? Was he a prophet? Well, they wouldn't answer. So he said, well, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Their whole problem was authority. And so when the next day, Jesus came and told parables that exposed them even more, that he was in that last parable, the parable of the householder, that he was the son that the king sent at the end, the householder sent at the end, he's the son. And no, you wouldn't reverence him. You, you decided he's the heir. Let's get rid of him and kill him. And they knew he spoke of them. What's the whole problem? Same problem that was in that parable when the people that the householder had given his vineyard over to to raise the grapes and produce the crop and get the profit saw the heir coming. Oh, they said, he's the boss. We don't want boss here. We're running things. When Jesus came, he's Messiah, he's Lord. He's more than just the son of David. He is the son of David. That was a messianic title. They were right as far as they went. But they wouldn't go to the full length of admitting what Messiah accurately portrayed in the Old Testament is the Lord and ruler of all. Because the whole issue with them and the whole issue with you and me is authority. Because human nature is rebel. And even if we use a context or a, a figure of speech that's a little bit less blunt, what Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Folks, this, this is the bottom line of what sin really is. This is the bottom line of what our problem in our heart, even as Christians, we still have the old man, and the old man at heart is rebellious. God says 613 things, if that's a correct number, 300 and so many negative, 248 positive, and we say, well, we have a better plan. I, I, I like my plan for my life better than I like your plan for my life. It's his lordship that we struggle with. It's why people don't. And you know, this is, whether you know it or not, this is what happens in salvation. A person comes under conviction for sin, and when that conviction for sin reaches a pinnacle, you make a choice. You're either going to harden your heart or you're going to open your heart to Christ. And when Paul is talking about this, he says, you know what? Verses that we use all the time to tell people how to be saved that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Okay, but here's what, here's what the force of that really is. You Go ahead and check me if you want. I don't mind. I'm telling you, this is what the force. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord. 
and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So what is it? A man comes to me and presents the claims of Christ. I say, oh. God starts a work in my heart. I begin to realize that I am a sinner. I I have gone my own way. I I have not done what God says I should do for my life. And however long it takes that process, but it, it builds in my life. And one day I get to the place where I say, I've had enough of this. I want to be right with God. I want to be saved. I want to have eternal life. I want to know I have a home in heaven. I want to know that I have peace with God. And now it's, it's a belief in my heart that I'm ready to act on. And I don't come to Jesus and say, did you do this? At that point, if it's really genuine, I don't come to Jesus and say, well, uh, I, would you forgive my sins because I don't want to go to heaven and then I'll see you in 50 years when I'm done with doing what I want to do in life. Now, I'm not saying that you have a full understanding of all this, but that's not how you come. In your heart, you come with submission. You're not asking questions. You're not setting conditions. You just want what he can do for you by grace. And then he does a work in your heart and you're regenerated and all of a sudden you have a new nature and you start waking up to the fact, wow, I belong to Christ now. And, and, And we learn more of what that involves and sometimes we still have our battles, right? But because our heart's been changed, there's a basis God works there, and we, we spend our lives yielding more and more and more, making Jesus more the Lord of our life, more the Lord of our life, as he shows us areas that are still rebel and still unsurrendered. So let me end the message this way. Do like the Bereans did, that when they heard... They searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. When we hear people talk about things, it's always wise to think about them against the backdrop of of scripture. And don't just trust what sounds good. Because these three people that came to Jesus all had ideas of what sounded good. The Sadducees thought, it can't be a resurrection. Can't be. Doesn't make sense up here. Sadducees or Pharisees came and says, you can't pay tribute to Caesar. Jesus said, well, you know what? Those duties really don't conflict if you look at them right. So how many times do you, I just want to send you away with some food for thought. How many times do you encounter people in the course of witnessing or talking about the Lord or even in your own life as you listen to things? How many times do we come up with arguments to sell ourselves? That sounds okay. I think I'm okay over here but it's not really measured out against scripture. It just, it sounds good. And certainly never make the mistake of thinking you can work your way to heaven because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as good as it sounds and as appealing to the pride of our hearts as it is to believe that somehow we can help God out and we can add our good works and we can add our church attendance and kind of get ourselves a little push, make ourselves a little more deserving. It's never true.
you and I are bankrupt. We don't have anything to offer God except a broken heart. And the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, the psalmist says, thou wilt not despise. There was a king who had a problem with some rebellious subjects. Finally, they came to the point of surrender. They laid down their arms, threw themselves at his feet, and asked for mercy. He pardoned them all. Only to be reminded by someone who was off to the side, one of his more loyal ministers or subjects, didn't you say that every rebel deserved to die? The king said, yes, but I see no rebels here. That's what I want. I don't want to be held accountable for what I know I deserve. But when I come and I ask for mercy and grace, I hear him say, you have my pardon, and I find no rebel here. Oh, Father, thank you for grace and mercy so full and so free. Thank you for giving us what we don't deserve and not, not giving us what we do deserve. Mercy and grace, thank you. Thank you for Jesus, how incredible Jesus is. On every level, in every facet, even just to look at his teaching. And thank you, Lord, that the Spirit of Christ dwells in our hearts so that we can remember all things that you've said and we can have illumination and we can have understanding as we read the scriptures. So bless us today. Work in our hearts. Help us to not be rebels, but to serve you and open our hearts to you as you speak to us. We'll thank you for what you do now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our songbooks.